You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Please listen to the following message. I'll be part of this noble effort, reading excerpts from the upcoming Your Brain on Facts book. Can you imagine a world immune to all forms of cancer? Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for our fourth annual live stream for the cure. And this year, we need your help more than ever. Please join us May 27th through May 31st for 48 hours of live content from guests and podcasts around the world. We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference. A slight warning about the tone of today's episode rather than the content. All of the stories today are heavy, but they have happy endings. So decide at your own discretion if you're going to listen. In 1921, Alaska native Ada Blackjack was hired as cook and seamstress for an expedition to claim the isolated and uninhabited Wrangell Island, which is now part of Russia, for Canada. The expedition began with five people. They made it to the island before their rations ran out, but there wasn't enough game on the island to sustain them. Three men left to get help, leaving Ada with a sick fifth man, who shortly died. Ada was alone on the island for two years. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. We're all going through some degree of hardship right now, but most of us have family or friends, in person or via technology, to help us through. In that respect alone, we're doing a lot better than the subjects of today's episode. Take, for instance, Ricky McGee in 2006. When he stumbled in front of a pickup truck of two Australian ranch workers, jackaroos in the local parlance, his deeply sun-scorched skin hung off his skeleton. They weren't even sure they were looking at a man and not some demon of the northern outback. Things had been considerably better for McGee ten weeks earlier. The 35-year-old was hale and hearty and had just landed a new job. Driving along a barren North Australia highway, he spotted a group of stranded travelers and their vehicle on the side of the road. Knowing it could be a long time before anyone else came by, he let some of the men get into his car to drop them at the next town. That was the last thing McGee could clearly remember. He came to in the middle of the desert, stripped naked and barefoot under the harsh sun, which, bonus fact, bombards Australia with more UV rays than other continents because of the hole in the ozone layer. McGee had nothing, not even a notion of which way to go. Waiting for help to find him seemed fruitless, so he began to walk. Each morning, he told himself, today was the day. Today he would see a house or a town, at least a road he could follow. Each day ended the same as the day before. There was one ameliorating factor in his situation. The rainy season had just ended, and there was water to be found. He found a decent-sized water hole and began to try to make a shelter. One week had ticked by before food, in the form of a lizard, crossed McGee's path. He was able to catch and kill it with his bare hands, laying the meat out in the sun to dry. McGee's diet was made up of anything that walked, crawled, or slithered past him. 
lizards, snakes, grasshoppers, bugs, and even leeches. After his ordeal, McGee said that the leeches weren't bad, but you had to eat them quickly, otherwise they'd attach to the inside of your mouth. He also ate any plant that passed a taste test, which is not, strictly speaking, the best way to find non-poisonous plants. But he got lucky. His diet was diverse, but not plentiful. Calories were thin on the ground, no pun intended. Dingoes had begun prowling around, trying to decide if he was meat yet. Starving, weakening, and beginning to despair, McGee fashioned a cross for the top of his shelter. It seemed likely that the shelter would become his casket. But he managed to stay alive. When he'd been carjacked, McGee weighed 233 pounds, or about 105 kilograms. When the Jackaroos found him, he only weighed 100 pounds, or 45 kilograms. But he was alive. He managed to keep himself going alone in the desert for 71 days in what his rescuers described as one of the most isolated places in Australia. McGee was flown to the Royal Darwin Hospital, where medical staff described him as emaciated but well hydrated, a credit to his decision to stay at the waterhole. Police and the media were initially suspicious of McGee's story, assuming that his previous minor drug offense must have meant he'd been up to dirty deals with dirty dealers, and that's how he ended up stranded. His stolen car never turned up, which would have helped his story. McGee even offered to eat a frog on live TV. But thankfully, Bush survival experts weighed in that his story was plausible. So no more frogs for Ricky McGee. Water kept Ricky McGee alive, but it was nearly the death of Jose Alvarenga, a man who would probably rather not hold the record for the longest time spent adrift at sea alone. In November 2015, Alvarenga, and please forgive me if at some point I slip and say Alvarez, it's almost guaranteed to happen, was getting his gear together for a 30-hour deep-sea fishing trip off the coast of Costa Azul, Mexico. His quarry were sharks, marlins, and sailfish, expensive fish that would hopefully give him an edge over his competition. The trip didn't get off to a promising start when Alvarenga's usual partner backed out at the last minute, and he took on a less experienced fisherman named Ezekiel Cordoba that he'd never even spoken to before that day. But he figured it was a short trip, so everything would be okay. On November 17th, the pair set out on a 24-foot fiberglass skiff, small as boats go, with fishing gear, a radio, and an enormous cooler that would soon be almost overloaded with fish. Just a few hours into their journey, though, a storm rolled in. And it stayed. For five days. They had to dump their catch to lighten the boat so it would be more maneuverable. Alvarenga tried to steer the boat back to shore, but he couldn't see where the shore was in the pounding rain, and the little ship didn't have GPS. When the storm finally cleared, the men found that the motor was gone, as was most of the fishing gear, and the electronics were all badly damaged. Unlike the passengers of the SS Minnow, who took all of their belongings on a three-hour cruise, Alvarenga and Cordoba had only a day's worth of food and water. There was enough charge in the backup battery of the two-way radio for Alvarenga to get a Mayday message out, but he couldn't tell his potential rescuers where he was, because he simply didn't know what part of the seemingly endless Pacific Ocean they were in. 
The search teams had tried to look for them, but the rain had made it impossible. There was no way to know how long they would be out there, so the men turned to the sea for survival. Alvarenga was able to catch fish, turtles, and seabirds with his bare hands, though Cordoba was basically useless in those efforts. The turtles were a lucky catch. Their meat is actually rich in vitamin C, which prevented the men from developing scurvy. They collected rainwater when there was rain to collect, but otherwise had to hydrate themselves with a mixture of turtle blood and urine. Their urine. The sun rose and set dozens of times, but the flat horizon of the ocean remained unbroken. Alvarenga was used to a diet of seafood, being on the water and the harsh salty air. Ezekiel Cordoba, however, was not. By the fourth month, Cordoba was at his breaking point, physically and mentally. He couldn't keep food down, and after a while, he stopped trying. It wasn't long after that. Alvarenga couldn't bring himself to put Cordoba's body overboard. Not because such a makeshift burial at sea was disrespectful, but because he couldn't cope with the idea of being alone. He sat with the body for days, and considered ending his own suffering. Somehow, though, he found the strength to push himself up and determined to survive. That was month four. Alvarenga began to track the lunar cycle to get a rough idea of how long he'd been adrift. Fifteen lunar cycles would pass before Alvarenga saw the sight he'd been dreaming of. The little battered boat washed up on the shore of an atoll in the Marshall Islands. For those like myself who don't know offhand where that is, the Marshall Islands lie roughly halfway between Hawaii and New Zealand. Alvarenga had drifted over 6,000 miles or 9,700 kilometers over the course of 400 days, more than a year. Fortune smiled on Alvarenga. There was a little cottage on the beach with people inside. Those people called the authorities immediately. Alvarenga's family and employer were thrilled when he returned. Ezekiel Cordoba's family, not as much. They, like a lot of other people, doubted the details of Alvarenga's incredible story. He seemed to be in too good shape for someone fighting off starvation every day, to say nothing of the devil's own luck in landing in the Marshall Islands. Doctors, career sailors, and experts on ocean currents from the University of Hawaii came to his defense, but that wasn't enough for the Cordobas. They believed Alvarenga had survived by eating Ezekiel's body, and they sued him for a million dollars. Alvarenga maintained that as Cordoba lay dying, he made Alvarenga promise him two things, that Alvarenga wouldn't eat his body, and that he'd find Cordoba's mother and tell her what had happened. Alvarenga kept the second promise, and swore he'd kept the first one, too. If you're dying to hear the outcome of the case, so am I. I found article after article about the lawsuit being filed, but nothing that mentioned what has happened in the intervening five years as far as the outcome. Oh well, at least I have our weekly trivia contest to distract me. The most recent prize was provided by Fireside Gaming. The contest starting this Friday, I did take a week or two off for my operation, has three games from Greenbrier Games, Barbarian Battlegrounds, Burger Up, and Ninja Dice. You can play at yourbrainonfacts.com trivia. 
And thanks to everyone who checked in on me after my surgery, and to my wonderful patrons like Maria and Lorelai, who are getting all the perks regardless of their level until the pandemic passes, including the most recent bonus episode on what you can and can't name your baby in certain countries. And of course to the lovely folks who leave me reviews, like Amanda who wrote, I'm a complete trivia freak and will soak up all that information goodness that Moxie showers me with every episode. She could read me the phone book and I would be happy as a clam. And I'm sure she could tell you where that fun idiom came from. Thanks, Amanda. And thanks to everyone who leaves reviews and who passes on the word on social media at Instagram and Facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. And you are a member of the Brainiac Breakroom, right? Over at Facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Breakroom. It's a great place to find and share more weird and wonderful facts as well as to connect with your fellow Brainiacs. Some survival stories hinge on strength of will, a person's raw determination to live. Other times, science steps in and saves the day. Anna Bagenholm worked as a radiologist at the University Hospital of North Norway. She made history there in 1999, but on the operating table. Her remarkable incident began with a skiing trip after work with some colleagues. They were all avid skiers who were familiar with the local mountains, and the conditions that day were ideal, sunny with lots of fresh powder. They were only a few runs in when Anna tripped, losing her skis, tumbled and slid toward a frozen stream. When she hit it, the ice broke and her upper half was pulled into the frigid, rushing water. Her friends were able to reach her and grab her boots before the current could pull her all the way under. They phoned for help. Beneath the water, Bagenholm struggled upward and managed to reach the airspace under the ice. She could breathe, but her clothes were soaked in near-frozen water. Drowning now had to fight hypothermia to see who would get her first. By the time the rescue team arrived, hacked a hole in the ice, and hauled her out, Bagenholm had been submerged for nearly an hour and a half. Her skin was pure white. Her pupils were blown. She had no heartbeat. The medevac helicopter ride took another hour, during which the rescuers performed CPR. A little bit more information on the meat mech your brain is piloting. Left to its own devices, the human body likes to be around 98 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius. All sorts of complex, involuntary, automatic things happen to keep you as close to that number as possible. But the world is a cold place sometimes. When the body senses you getting too cold, it begins to protect you from the outside in. Since air pulls heat away from the surface of the body, blood vessels in the skin begin constricting. Less blood is going to your arms and legs, and more is staying in your core to keep your internal organs warm. This leaves you susceptible to frostbite, but you've got bigger problems. If the vasoconstriction doesn't stop the temperature drop, the body tries to make more heat by moving the muscles. You'll start to shiver, usually from the chest muscles outward. This too can be a problem if it goes on too long, as it tears through your nutritional reserves and taxes the heart increasing the risk of heart attack or stroke. If your body temperature drops below 95 degrees Fahrenheit, 35 Celsius, hypothermia sets in. Your blood pressure drops and your breathing becomes shallow. This means less oxygen is getting to your brain, 
which can bring on slurred speech, confusion, nonsensical actions, none of which will be particularly helpful. Arctic explorer Robert Falcon Scott referred to this in his writings on his 1911 expedition as a half-thawed brain. And there's a truly bizarre reaction that happens sometimes. Paradoxical undressing. The freezing person suddenly feels like they're burning up and strips off all their clothes. So now you're dead, and everybody can see your hoo-ha. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. As the cooling continues, the brain and other organs begin to shut down. When the helicopter landed at University Hospital, Bogenholm's core temperature was 56 degrees Fahrenheit, 14 degrees Celsius, about 60% of what it should be. She had no signs of life, but the head of the emergency department, Mads Gilbert, and his team made a decision. Anna was not dead until she was warm and dead. They rushed Bogenholm into an emergency room and hooked her up to a heart-lung bypass machine, pumping her blood out of her body to warm it and then pumping it back in. Hours passed and her temperature slowly rose. The staff watched her vitals. The EKG machine blipped, then flatlined again, and then blipped again. Suddenly, Bogenholm's heart jumped back to life, pumping on its own. The cold had preserved her brain, like an organ waiting to be transplanted, even while it was starving her brain of oxygen. Anna Bagenholm was alive, but she had a long row to hoe. It took 12 days for her to open her eyes, and it would take years for her to walk again. But she did. Hell, she even went skiing again, though I most certainly would not. Not unless you want to try to beat her record for the lowest body temperature in a living, eventually, person. Outdoor recreation, while healthy and fun, always carries with it inherent dangers. Anna Bogenholm had her friends nearby to help. Aaron Ralston did not. To tell you his story, please welcome my guest, 
Juan Herrera from the podcast Sick Parvis Magna. And now for a story of survival. In April 2003, mountaineer Aaron Ralston goes hiking at Utah's Canyons National Park. He befriends hikers Christy and Megan and shows them an underground pool. After swimming, Aaron parts ways with the hikers and continues through a slot canyon in Blue John Canyon. While climbing, he slips and falls, knocking over a boulder which crushes his right hand and wrist against the wall. He calls for help, but realizes soon that he is alone. Ralston begins recording a video diary to maintain morale as he chips away parts of the boulder to try and free himself and tries to keep warm at night. He rations his food and water to survive the ordeal. With no water available, he is forced to drink his urine. It is sterile, for those that don't know. He sets up a pulley using his climbing rope in a futile attempt to lift the boulder. Over the next five days, Ralston tries using his multi-tool to cut himself free, but the blade is too dull to cut the bone. In his video, he becomes desperate and depressed. He hallucinates about escape, relationships, and past experiences, including a former lover, family, and Christy and Megan. During one hallucination, he realizes that his mistake was that he did not tell anyone where he was going, and he decides that destiny has trapped him with the boulder. On the sixth day, Ralston has a vision of his future son, spurring his will to survive. He fashions a tourniquet from a camel pack tube insulation and uses a carabiner to tighten it. Then, using his knowledge of torque, he breaks the bone in his arm and, using the multi-tool, slowly amputates it. He wraps the stump to prevent exsanguination and takes a picture of the boulder. He then repels down a 60-foot rock face using his other arm and drinks rainwater from a pond. He meets a family on a hike who alert the authorities, and a Utah Highway Patrol helicopter brings him to the hospital. Years later, Ralston starts a family, continues climbing, and always leaves a note saying where he has gone. With that being said, Aaron Ralston shares what he has learned, the three gifts adversity gives you. One, it shows you who or what is important. After realizing that we are likely going to die in that canyon, Ralston recorded goodbyes to his family, his last will and testament. Formulating those thoughts and focusing on his family kept him going and motivated not to give up. Two, it shows us what we're capable of. At multiple points throughout his experience, Ralston said underestimated his ability to survive, yet he kept powering through each milestone that he thought would be his last. I found strength, courage, and determination and grit that I could never conceived of, Ralston said. Adversity causes us to dig deeper than we had ever done before, to get in touch with the thing that can motivate us, even when we lose our motivation. 3. It shows us what's extraordinary about being alive. By the time Ralston was able to amputate his own hand, he was smiling while he did it because he had come so close to death so many times throughout this ordeal. But his drive for freedom, his will to see his family again, and his certainty that he had more life left to live in the end overpowered all of the agony and despair he felt along the way. Aaron Ralston is one of the few unforgettable survival stories that are out there. This has been one from Sick Parvis Magna Gaming and Podcast. Check out my show as we talk about multiple success stories and how everyone got from their point A to point B. Thanks, Juan. Look in the show notes for a link to his show, which I'll be appearing on too. From that very well-known story to one that's lesser known, but always fascinates me when I come across it. It began on Christmas Eve, 1971. Julianne Kupka was a high school senior living in Peru though she was a German citizen owing to her German researcher parents. 
Seventeen-year-old Julianne and her mother boarded a flight across the country to join her father at the research station her parents had founded. Julianne's graduation was the day before, and this way she could both attend the ceremony and the family could spend the holidays together. Mid-flight, over the vast, dense Amazon rainforest, the Lonsa Lockheed Electra flew into a dangerous thunderstorm. There was a bright flash of light over the right wing, possibly an explosion, maybe a lightning strike. At around 10,000 feet, three kilometers above the ground, the plane began to break apart. Passengers and wreckage were scattered over the jungle as the plane arced toward the ground. Kupka, still strapped into her seat, fell nearly two miles to the earth. Sometime later, she didn't know how long, Kopka woke to find her glasses and one shoe were gone. There was a deep laceration on one arm and one leg, a broken collarbone, a probable concussion, her right eye was swollen completely shut, and her left eye nearly. It's thought that being strapped into her seat had saved her life, by catching some air to slow her descent and cushioning the actual impact. Her first instinct was to call out to her mother. They'd been sitting next to each other, so surely she must be nearby. Kopka began to search the area. While twisted metal from the plane, suitcases, and bodies littered the jungle, none of them were near her. Though she did find a small bag of candy. It was the wrong time of year for fruit, and so many things in the jungle are poisonous, so this would be the only food she would have. Injured, lost, alone, and without supplies, Kopka did have one thing in her favor. Three years before the crash, she spent a year and a half living with her parents at the research station. She'd been taught some jungle survival skills, so she knew what dangers awaited her in the dense forest and how to avoid them. She kept her one shoe on so she could lead with that foot to avoid stepping on snakes. She soon came upon a tiny stream, not even big enough to be called a creek. But Kopka knew that a small stream leads to a big stream. Big streams lead to rivers, and rivers eventually lead to people. So she followed the stream. Sleep was difficult for Julianne. The wound on her arm had become infected. To her horror, there were maggots living in the wound, and insects bit her relentlessly and tried to crawl in her nose and eyes as she slept. On the fifth or sixth day, Kopka heard a familiar sound, a Hotsen bird call, a sound she had heard often at the research center, and she knew that the bird nested near open water. She was going the right way, and that gave her some strength. The next day, standing on the bank of the river, she saw a plane pass overhead. She thought that the searchers were giving up, that they'd found all the other passengers and had written her off as dead. She was enraged, and then despaired. When the river bank was too densely covered, Kopka had to wade in the river, and then swim when it got deeper, keeping her eyes open constantly for piranhas and caiman, which are like small alligators. Being in the water also means being out from under the shade of the trees, and Germans are not renowned for their tolerance of sunlight. Kopka was so badly sunburned that her skin bled. The days went on, and each morning it got harder to get up and get moving. Kopka dreamt about food and hallucinated a roof line in the distance or the sound of farm animals. On the tenth day, she was so tired she just floated along with the river, though she'd have to stop when she hit a log and find the strength to climb over it. And that evening, she just slept on the riverbank. 
When Julianne Kopka opened her eyes, she saw something she couldn't believe. A boat. She swam over to it. It was real. She could touch it. She saw a little trail going from there up the hill and managed to drag herself up it, though it seemed to take hours. At the top, she found a fishing hut. There were no people in it, but at least it was shelter, and it gave Kopka a chance to try to tend to her wounds. She found a gas can and poured gas over her maggoty wound, something she had seen her father do for a wounded dog. Sure enough, the maggots fled the wound to get away from the gas. No one came to the hut that day, or the next, and at that point, Kopka was so weak she could no longer stand. Finally, on her eleventh day alone in the jungle, three fishermen arrived at the cabin. Kopka was so gaunt, burned, and injured that the first man who saw her with her blue German eyes thought she was a ghost. I am a girl who was in the Lonza crash, she said to them in Spanish. My name is Julianne. The men tended her wounds and fed her that night, and in the morning took her seven hours downriver, where a local pilot was able to fly her to the hospital. At the hospital, reunited with her father, Julianne learned that she hadn't been separated from the other survivors. She was the only one. This brought her years of survivor guilt to deal with, along with her injuries. Like her parents, Julianne would become a researcher, earning a degree in biology, and return to Peru to research bats. Her remarkable story was the subject of, among other things, a documentary by director Werner Herzog called Wings of Hope. Herzog was actually supposed to be on that flight, but his plans changed at the last minute. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Back to Ada Blackjack. She survived alone on the island for two years, sort of like the book The Island of the Blue Dolphins, but moved the island to the Arctic and replaced the dolphins with polar bears, which were a constant threat. After she was finally rescued, Blackjack wasn't lauded. She was criticized for not saving the sick crewmate. There's just no pleasing some people. The main takeaway from today is, if these folks can survive what they went through, we can do what must be done to survive this and to make sure others survive as well. Remember, you can always find the research sources and the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Stay inside and stay safe. My name is CJ. And my name is Jordan. CJ, with his passion for an encyclopedic knowledge of comic books and superheroes, and his current job in the DC Universe at Warner Brothers, is, as you may have guessed, the nerd. And Jordan, with his seven long years of film school, culminating in a master's degree in screenwriting and his long history of studying and writing about film and television is, that's right, The Critic. When the theaters are open, we do a deep dive into the biggest box office winner of the weekend, which is very often a comic book adaptation, which is kind of the reason we started this podcast. Yes, but when the theaters are closed, curse you, Corona! <laughs>
We are your best at-home streaming content companions. That's some uh, nice alliteration, CJ. But what does it mean? It means we cover movies that you can stream. Okay, so basically what you're saying is that if you love movies... You'll love Nerd Critic. Yes. So check out our new episodes every Friday wherever you listen to podcasts. Go us. <laughs> Go us. Go us.